This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When we adapt to a new medium, printed page or television, or more recently, the internet and social media and so forth, we're not only changing our habits, but as we change our, our habits, we're changing the way we think. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's been 10 years since Nick Carr wrote his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. The book, when it when it first came out, was hugely well-received. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It described this reality people were beginning to feel, created a framework for it. Even if many folks, and, and I was one of these folks, even if many folks resisted the diagnosis, were even angry that he was making it. It was a controversial book. But he was writing... He was writing in the early days of the iPhone and of social media. The world he was describing, it feels quaint now, but the book doesn't. The Shallows is being re-released in a 10th anniversary edition. And when they sent it to me, I read it. It was one of these books I had an opinion on but had not read. And I felt embarrassed because this book I had dismissed a decade ago, it gave me a language and a model for things I've spent a decade trying to understand, not just what the internet and social media can do to a brain are doing to my brain, but what reading does to it. It, it gave me a language for a particular kind of a reading that I really love and, and seek. Uh, what speaking does to it. It's a profound piece of work, and it all flows from a central idea, which is obvious when you hear it, but I think it is almost impossible to fully appreciate its reach, that the mediums through which we consume and communicate, they reshape us in their image. There's a lot in this conversation, but but something it left me thinking about is that podcasting, no less than anything else, is a medium. And unlike some of the other spaces in which I've played and participated over the past decade, I think it's shaping me for the better for, for reasons that kind of come clear in this conversation. So I'm grateful to get to do it. I thank you all for letting me do it. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here, with great pleasure, is an overdue conversation with Nicholas Carr. Nick Carr, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. I want to start a bit as you start with Marshall McLuhan, who I have I tried after reading your book, which I loved. I tried to read his book, Understanding Media, and I did not understand it. I found it very difficult. <laughs> so I, I was hoping to maybe begin with you unpacking some of his ideas because they're pretty foundational here. Uh, let's start with this one. In the long run, a medium's content matters less than the medium itself in influencing how we think and act. What does that mean? McLuhan believed that when a new medium, a new communication tool arrives, everybody focuses on the content that comes through it. Um, and that's natural. When radio was invented, people were interested in the programs on, you know, when TV came along, they were interested in the TV shows. When you had a telephone in your house, you were interested in the conversation you were having. But what he, he what he believed is that the technology itself, the communication technology shapes 
the way we perceive things and the way we communicate in ways that we're pretty much oblivious to because we're so focused on the on the information coming through the medium. Um, but in the long run, he thought the technology's way of shaping our perceptions and our communication and the way we think ultimately had a much greater effect on us and on our lives than did the content flowing through the medium, whether it was television or, or, or the internet or, or whatever. So give me an example of it. And, and I don't want to get into the internet yet. I want to, I want to set this up with some of the mediums that have come before it. So give me an example of how this might work with television or written culture or, or something else. I'll start with the, the printing press. So the arrival of the medium of the book, the printed page, text that was not no longer you know, spoken, but actually we could sit down and, and read it. Because for McLuhan, this was the big revolution in kind of modern times. And, the, and so the, the printing press comes along, is invented by Gutenberg around 1450. And what, what, uh, McLuhan argues is that you can only read by yourself. You can't, it's not a group activity. And so when, when people started to read and literacy became more and more, uh, widespread, People removed themselves from the social world that they spent all their time in, most of their time in previously, and focused on whether it was a, uh, a story or a argument, kind of a long unspooling of text. And, and he believed this made us much more individualistic. And in some ways, he thought it, it narrowed us because it, it took us out of more and more, it took us out of the world of nature and the world of society. And we began to define ourselves as individuals, as people who had this particular mix of knowledge that we got from books and newspapers and so forth. And he also went further than, than that. And, and he gets, you know, I, I totally sympathize with your, your, your bafflement in reading him because he gets pretty weird. But he thought that the, the printed page gave our visual sense, our sense of sight, dominance over all the other senses. Um, and as a result, he believed that, that we became not only more individualistic, but we became more alienated from other people and from the world itself because we no longer paid as much attention to our tactile sense and our uh, sense of smell and, and so forth. And, and so to him... Up until the arrival, the more recent arrival of electric media, radio, uh, and television, the dominant medium was the printed page, and this imposed on us a particular way of seeing and thinking that was very individualized um, and, and in a way very fragmented. A, a move you make in the book, which seems important here, is that these new technologies don't just change us by changing our habits or what we do, but they actually change our brains, that we become different as we adapt to them once they are dominant and once they're, they're a major part of our, our, our lives. You write at one point, the brain of the book reader was more than a literate brain. It was a literary brain. Do you want to talk a bit about that process and, and, and why people should see it as relevant here? Yeah. And so, and this is something that McLuhan didn't really get into, at least not the neuroscientific biological part of it. But as I read McLuhan and, and read other media theorists, and, and I certainly came to agree with them in, in looking through the history of communications and, and information technologies and so forth, somehow something deep happens when we 
adapt ourselves to a new means of communication. So that that raised the question, you know, well, how does that work? I mean, what's what's going on uh, inside of our inside of our skulls that that actually allows these kind of changes to happen? And that led me to recent discoveries, recent over the last 40 years or so, about what's called uh, neuroplasticity, the incredible malleability of our brains. Up until 1960s, 1970s, everybody thought, oh, the human brain is malleable and changes and, and kind of adds new circuits and stuff up until you you're about the age of 20, and then everything stops and you're stuck with that. And that's not true. What we've learned now is that we're, our brains are constantly adapting to our environment. Uh, and when there's a change in the environment, uh, there's a change uh, in the way we think. And it's a biological change, not just a change of habit. And so what that kind of leads to is, is the realization that when we adapt to a new medium, printed page or television, or more recently, the internet and social media and so forth, we're not only changing our habits, but as we change our, our habits, we're changing the way we think. We're changing our neural circuitry. And in particular, what happens is, is more and more neurons kind of get recruited to the particular brain processes that you're using more often thanks to the different information technologies, but ways of thinking that aren't encouraged by the technology begin to lose. Uh, the, we begin to lose those abilities. Um, it's kind of a use it or lose it phenomenon that's analogous to kind of our muscles. If you exercise a certain muscle, that muscle gets stronger. If you don't exercise another one, it atrophies. Something similar, although the biological processes are different, something similar seems to happen within our brains. So, so give me an example here from the, the pre-internet era. When you compare somebody living in an oral culture to somebody living in a written culture, what processes in their brains, what facilities would have strengthened and, and, and what would have weakened? What would have changed? Well, one thing that changed and pretty dramatically is that the visual cortex, the part of our brain that processes our, our vision, what, what our eyes see, a lot of that became dedicated to deciphering text. If you look at how a child, for instance, what happens when they learn to read, at first it's very, very slow and halting. They have to actually identify each letter and kind of sound it out in their brain and then put the letters together to form a word and then figure out how to, what the, how, how you say the word and then what does that word mean? And so it's, you know, listening to a child read is very slow and you can, you can almost feel their brain kind of wrestling with the text. Well, as we practice that, uh, more and more of our visual cortex gets dedicated. I mean, the actual neurons get dedicated to reading very, very quickly to, to, to actually, you no longer have to decipher a particular letter or even a particular word because our brains represent those letters and words. And so they're just there automatically. So on the one hand, we began to be very, very good readers and we got all the benefits that come with, with being good readers, whether it's the value of losing yourself in a novel or the value of uh, gaining complex information from some sophisticated nonfiction book. But we also lost something, and what we lost is a lot of our visual acuity in reading nature, reading the world. I, you, if you look at older cultures that that aren't 
text-based. You see incredible abilities to, for instance, navigate by all sorts of natural signs and stuff. This, this acuity in reading the world, which also required a lot of the visual cortex, we lost some of that simply because we had to reprogram, in a sense, our brain to become good readers. You have a really great section in the book where you're talking about what it looks like in some of these transitions before we have acculturated, maybe mentally, but also socially, to, to a new technology. And you have this anecdote where St. Augustine wrote of his surprise at watching the Bishop of Milan read to himself, because this was right in between oral and written culture. And so most people read aloud. They basically, they, they were trying to transmute oral culture onto the written word. But the Bishop of Milan, Augustine writes, his voice was silent and his tongue was still. And that was an occasion to marvel. He read with his heart, Augustine says. So the, the words were imprinting on his heart. And now, you know, it's a little bit weird if you would wander around and see people reading aloud to themselves. But it's just, it's, I feel like it's very worth it to try to imagine that at one point, reading silently seemed strange because we didn't do things silently like that. Right. I think one <laughs> really interesting bit of information I, I came across, and it's also in the book, is that originally written language, when it, now we're talking back in hand, handwritten before there was typesetting stuff, there were no spaces between words. And the reason was, if you, if you listen to me talking right now, I'm not, I'm not breaking up my speech with a pause before each word, it all flows together. And so naturally, people just wrote without any space. And then as written works became more and more common and people wanted to to, to read more quickly and so forth, somebody, and I think this happened in like the 900s or some, said, well, maybe we should put a space between each word. And so suddenly, the kind of visual characteristics of written language suddenly broke apart from the characteristics of oral speech. And that l allowed much more much quicker reading, but also you started to be able to read silently. Um, because in the early days of, of reading written works, not only were people not used to reading silently, but reading out loud was a way to actually decipher these symbols that all flowed together. So it's, it's kind of amazing to, when you think back at how radical the changes that went on, went on really were. And, and there's a very relevant facility that people develop when they do a lot of silent reading over long periods of time. You write that to read a long book silently required an ability to concentrate intently over a long period of time, and that developing such mental discipline was not easy. And I'd maybe add that it also relates potentially at least to certain kind of changes in the brain. An experience you're discussing and contrasting in the book, and I think that a lot of people feel and, and, and talk about publicly now, is that as we become more acculturated to online information, what used to seem relatively easy sitting down for a long period of time with a book begins to feel very hard. And can you talk about uh, a bit about why that might happen? Um, how one how one of those facilities gets developed, and then how it might get um, the same the same powers gets recruited into another set of processes. Yeah, and I have to say, I, this was. Th my own personal experience with finding myself struggling to sit down and read a, a book or even a long article after I'd been using the internet a lot, that was really the inspiration for, for writing The Shallows. Uh, I, I just realized that it didn't used to be so hard to kind of shut off distractions and just really focus on a, on a good book for a long period of time, but I was really struggling. And I think, I mean, I, 
I don't want to narrow it down to just one reason, because I think there's there's all sorts of things going on here. One thing is that that we know that our minds like to be stimulated uh, and we like to gather new information. And so when you have a competition between, you know, pages and pages of text where you have to really concentrate and focus and the stimulus comes from being deeply engaged with the text. So it, so it emerges kind of slowly as you drive meaning from it versus being able to turn on your computer, or your phone and being bombarded with lots of little tidbits of information in all different forms. Our kind of natural bias, uh, which is to be information gatherers, leads us to the computer screen. But I also think there is something deeper going on, which is that I think, I think learning to read and focusing on text did teach us more generally how to pay attention because I don't think that's a natural thing that people do. We, we do want to know everything that's going on around us. So we're very susceptible to distraction. But I think, you know, opening up a book and following the flow of the narrative or the argument for a long period of time not only made us deep readers, but in, in, a, in a way encouraged us to be deep thinkers as well, uh, to be able to not only gather lots of information quickly, but to think through difficult, complex ideas, put them into context and so forth. And I think as we've adapted to the computer screen, and in particular now the smartphone screen, we simply don't practice that as much. And so we begin to lose that ability. And though that kind of older instinctive desire to know everything that's going on and to gather every little bit of information possible takes over. And I think that also is a reason that we find it more, many of us at least find it harder and harder to shut off the flow of information and concentrate on one thing, whether it's a book or anything else for a long period of time, because we simply aren't practicing that skill as much as we used to. And as a result, we get less and less good at it and therefore are pulled back to the busier world of uh, of the screen all the time. So I want to hold on a term you just used, deep reading, and then you followed it up with deep thinking. And something that I guess I brought to the book, but related to why I responded to it so strongly, was this experience of occasionally when I'm reading, and it's usually if I'm reading with a, like a certain amount of wakefulness and a long time, happens all the time for me on planes back when I used to be able to go on airplanes, but will happen sometimes here at home. I fall into this almost fugue state where I feel like I'm really flying through the book. I'm making associations between things in the book and things I've thought about. I get other good ideas for other projects. It's like one of my most creative and recharging states. And I've always found it very strange. I didn't have any language for it. I didn't know it was a thing. But you talk about it very much as a thing, this thing of deep reading. And it doesn't happen if you read a book for 15 minutes. It doesn't happen when you're flicking around things online. And it's a very powerful form of thinking. So could you talk a little bit about the concept of deep reading and what, what it is and what separates it from reading, which people are more familiar with? Well, we read in many, many different ways. You know, when you're driving, when you're in your car and you're driving down a highway, there are road signs going by and stuff, and you're reading those. And uh, when we read instructions in a manual, we're reading in a way. So there, we read in in many different ways. But deep reading, and this is this is a phrase that comes from you know scholars of reading. Deep reading is exactly the state that you were just describing, where you're you become so intent on 
the words on the page that everything else around you begins to fade away. And as you put it, you're not just kind of reading the narrative or the argument or whatever. You've kind of created, I, I would describe it as a sort of clearing in your mind where everything else you know begins to vibrate kind of with what you're reading. And, and, and like you, I, I completely find this to be a one of the best ways to generate new ideas and come up with with unexpected connections between what I might be reading about and some other experience I've had or some other bit of knowledge I have in my brain. And so that's that's kind of the state of deep reading when when and it's all about concentration and attention and shutting off everything else that might be going on around you. Uh, so you so kind of your full attentive capacity, your full mind can be dedicated to the work you're reading. Some people describe reading as a passive activity, but but I think deep reading is is one of the most active, at least mentally, activities you can imagine because it does set off all these connections in your mind and associations in your mind that really expand uh, your understanding and your knowledge beyond the bounds of whatever uh, the words are saying. This goes against our nature of wanting to be stimulated and wanting to to shift our attention all the time. So this is something that we really have to learn. And it's very pleasurable when you do it. But what's what scares me, and this is from my own personal experience, but also just in society in general, I think we're devaluing deep reading as we come to perform it less and less often. Let me ask you something tactical about that. How, how do you pursue or, or make it more likely you'll find times of deep reading in your day? Like what, what makes it easier for you to fall into that state and what makes it harder? Well, it's certainly a struggle. I mean, it continues to be a struggle for me and there's no time that I feel the pull of electronic media and digital media than when I actually sit down and start to read. So first of all, I have to isolate myself from computers and phones and, and other things. And by isolate, I, I mean, often you have to put your phone in a, a different room and we might, that, that might lead to a different topic, but. Um, Can I tell you something real quick on that? Yeah, I, I actually bought I bought a time limited safe for this reason, like for this and for parenting. <laughs> I have a little safe that you can buy it on the internet. Search time limited safe, and it's like I will like it does not open until there's no way to open it save with a hammer until the time limit is over. And it's exactly for this because I feel like in parenting and 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 then in reading often to, when I'm trying to fall into these states where I'm just there and present in this process, which can be a little hard. If I can get to my phone, it is not. I'm going to pull myself out of it. I just am. So I need. I literally need to right. lock an expensive piece of electronics I bought by choice away from myself. It's the craziest fucking thing. Yeah, <laughs> and there's some recent research that shows that when your phone is around, particularly when it's in view, but even if it's near you and not locked up in a safe, it pulls away a considerable considerable amount of your attentional capacity even if you're not looking at it even if not you're you're not using it even if you think you're not paying attention to it because we always know that there's something new going on on our phone it's got all sorts of very meaningful stuff on there from pictures of our friends and family to communications from our friends and family to topics we feel emotionally connected to as one of the scholar who's studied this 
there's this brain drain that goes on even when we're not using our phone if we know it's available to us. Either we, we're desiring to pick it up and look at it or we're suppressing the desire and both of those pull our attention away. So I find there's two things really. One is to to kind of physically <laughs> isolate myself, not only from, you know, what we used to have to try to isolate ourselves from, which is, you know, people talking and uh, those kind of distractions, but actually from the devices, informational devices that are always such a pull on our attention. And then the other thing is to actually persevere because it, it takes a while to kind of adapt yourself to the pace of reading, which is much slower, much more deliberate than we're used to these days. And I, I find it when you stick with it, then, you know, you get, you can start to get lost again in the pages of a good book, but it takes time and it takes more and more these days. It, it takes creating a situation in which you're shielded from the distractions we've always had, but are now much more prevalent than, than ever in the past. And this is a funny way in which I've come to think reading is missold to people, which is a weird thing to say. So a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a commencement speech, which didn't and at a at a university, which didn't end up happening due to a labor dispute where I didn't want to cross the, the line. But the speech I was gonna give was gonna be called like do the reading. And and the idea of it, which I don't think I had understood in school as somebody who often shirked doing the reading, was that if you can get the argument of the book, right, you can get it through book reviews or book essays or a Wikipedia page or something, that actually isn't what the book can do for you primarily. Getting the main argument of a book is very easy. It's the time you spend in it where you begin to make connections between the things you brought to the book and the book that is valuable. Like Even a bad book in this way can be very valuable because it's really about the interaction of the book and you. And that takes a lot of time. I mean, the the value of books, given that they are slow and long, is you have to spend so much time in that world that you begin to adapt that world to yourself and you come out with something that the writer couldn't have given you. You know, I I read a book recently and, you know, and I, I read some of the reviews and I always think about how different it must be, right? Like how how much less now I understand reading a review of a book is than, than actually being in the book because it's really about how you wrestle with it. And I don't think we're really taught that in a, in a, in a funny way. I feel like we're, I feel like the, the metaphor we have for the book is almost the thing in the matrix, right? Where the little pin goes into the back of your head and it downloads the, the information into your brain. And we all sort of wish we had that. I've said this so many times about long books. I don't want to read that book. I want to have read that book. But the, the, the trick of it is that it's not really about the information in the book. I mean, you get some of that, but you're really going to forget most of that instantly as you are reading it. It's about the things in the book that connect to information or ideas you already have. Like in your book, deep reading is not the biggest part of it, but because it's identifying something that has been going on and I've been trying to identify in my own life, it's a part that I really resonated to and really helped me clarify something that's been very important to me. Yeah. That brings up a broader topic, which is that I think there for, for a long time, there's been this tension in our view of reading between reading as this practical activity that's about essentially about mining a text for information that's useful to you in, in some way in reading as more of just a an exercise in contemplation an opening up of your your mind to new ideas and uh, even new experiences and i think you know i i think 
over time as a society and as a culture, we've come much to look much more at reading as this practical way of deriving information. And once you see it like that, then you start to, you think, well, the more efficient I can be at this, the better. And so, so in the past, there were attempts to, you know, spread speed reading so you could go a lot, lot faster. In these days, it, as you say, you know, oh, there are summaries or I can get the gist of it by Googling something. Um, and so in a way, we, we've become more and more focused on this practical view of reading, which, which is all about productivity and efficiency. And more and more, we lose, lose sight or at least lose the sense of the importance of reading as a kind of act of contemplation where your whole mind is, is engaged. And I would, I would go further that I don't think that's just about reading. I think there's also a tension in our view of the mind. Um, that's really come to the fore, particularly with personal computers and with the internet. And I think there's the Silicon Valley view, which is that the mind is essentially a kind of computer and the more information you can input into it as quickly as possible, then the smarter will be and output will output more and more information and so forth. And to me, that's misreading of the mind itself, that there are much of the, the much of human intelligence, of the highest forms of human intelligence are not about productivity and are not about information processing. They're about getting into this more contemplative state. So I think this, 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 tension in the view of reading kind of suggests this bigger tension in how we think about the best use of the human mind. This is probably a good space in which to begin to move to what the internet does to, to the mind. But but I want to make a confession first, because uh, if other people are, are where I was on this, maybe it'll be useful, which is, so your book came out about 10 years ago. And I was, um, you know, in journalism by then. And so your book was sort of like in my consciousness. And I was very resistant to it. I didn't read it. I like read some reviews of it. And I felt I was a blogger and I felt like the internet's making me so much smarter. So how dare this guy come along and tell me that I'm in the shallows. And it's funny because 10 years later, when it got sent to me, everything had just gone faster and faster and faster. And an argument that at that point, I, I had much more of that maybe Silicon Valley view of the mind, where I was like, you know, just surfing like oceans of information and having all of this input to process, like that's great. You know, that's how we're going to get smart. Like if people can't keep up, that sucks for them. And then it just keeps getting faster. And maybe now I'm just the guy who can't keep up. But my experience of what it was doing to me really changed. It went from making, I felt like I was able to contain it to I felt totally overwhelmed by it. I felt like it was making me smarter to I felt like it was just making me distracted and unable to focus. And and I and I imagine maybe a lot of people have gone through some version of that. So I'd, I'd love to hear first what you felt the internet was doing to our brains back in, I guess it must have been 2010 when it came out, and then how you feel it has changed in the ensuing decade. So it's, it's good to set the stage by <laughs> thinking back to 2010, only 10 years ago, but our main way of being online back then was through computers, was through laptop computers, desktop computers. The iPhone had come out in, um, I guess, 2007, but it was still, smartphones hadn't taken over yet. And social media was around, Facebook was around, I think Twitter had just appeared, but it was still sort of on the periphery. People used a lot, but they weren't kind of living their lives uh, through social media. So it was a very different kind of technological world when we're in, in terms of digital technology than we're in today. And yet, you know, 
back then my what i found in myself and what i what i what i think the evidence already was strongly suggesting was that the internet was a was a very very powerful way to access lots of information very, very quickly. And I don't want to diminish the value of that. And so we were all concentrating on that great new bounty um, that, oh, the more information, the better, the faster it comes to me, the better. And what we lost sight of at that point was that at least equally important to the volume of information flowing at us all the time is how we actually take that information into our mind. And there's all sorts of very, very good evidence that, you know, if you're distracted, if you're, if your attention is shifting very, very quickly, you can, you can gather lots of information very, 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 in a very swift fashion, but you're not going to assemble it very well into knowledge. It's going to just remain bits of information, stuff stuff you can Google easily, but you're not going to develop a rich store of personal knowledge, which is all about connections and associations. And so I, I think it was quite clear even back then that we were making this big trade-off between getting lots and lots of information very, very quickly and developing a rich base of knowledge. Uh, and what was lost was not only the ability to engage in deep reading and attentive thought and contemplation, but also the ability to, when we come across new information, to bring it into our mind and to put it into a broader context. Because that takes time, that takes a, attention, that takes focus. And so the, you know, the fundamental argument of, of, of the shallows, I, I think, was that we were making this trade-off. Um, and I, I you know, what I worried about in it and what I still worry about is that the trade-off's not worth it, that we lose more than we gain ultimately. Well, what's happened since then, uh, on one level, I think it's made all of my concerns, it's magnified all of my concerns because uh, over the last 10 years, the smartphone took over as the dominant form of the computer. And the smartphone, unlike even a laptop, the smartphone is always on, it's always with us. We can access it, you know, almost instantaneously. People walk around with it in their hands. Um, so any kind of dis the, the, this kind of constant distraction that I that I documented with laptops and desktops is now much more dominant. Um, it goes on all the time. And also social media exploded and became one of, if not the main thing people do with computers. In the way social media distributes information, in the way it gives particular value or particular emphasis to very emotional information um, and, and simplified kind of strong messages, I think all of this has made the problems I, I tried to delineate has has made them more intense and in, in, in kind of deeper set within society. You know, the shallowest focus is very much on the personal effects of the technology. What I think has become clearer and clearer in the last 10 years is that now there's also a big social effect of the technology. So I, I would say that those are the big changes that have, have happened. On the one hand, all the distractions that we had 10 years ago, they've proliferated and, and the speed of information flow has picked up and everything, but also that the way we may make sense of things socially has changed dramatically as social media has essentially taken over media. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, but it's more than just a tagline. 
Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Let's talk a bit about some of that evidence and the, the mechanisms it points towards. Why don't, why don't we start actually with the mechanisms? Because a big point of the book is that our metaphors or folk understanding of our memory is wrong, that memory is not one process, but it's a number of processes. And in particular, it's a process by which short-term memory, which has one set of characteristics, has to or has to not move things into long-term memory. So do you want to talk a bit about what that is and how that's maybe different than our sense of memory as almost like a like a video recorder tracking what we see in the world? So in memory is a very complicated subject. So I'm I let me first start by saying I, I'm going to simplify here uh, quite a bit, but hopefully in a uh, in a way that illuminates things. There are two different kinds of memory. There's short-term memory, which manifests itself most as what's called working memory. And working memory, the way to think of it is working memory is basically the contents of your conscious mind. It's it's the stuff, the information you're working with. Um, and what we know about working memory or, or sh- short-term memory is that it has a very, very small capacity. You can only think about two or three or four things at once. Um, and in order to think about a new thing, you have to push something else out of your working memory. Then there's long-term memory. And that's what we, when we talk about memory, we're, we usually mean long-term memory. That's the store of information of all sorts of our, of our facts we know, experiences we've had, people, people's faces and stuff. Uh, the store of memory in our, uh, store of memory in our mind. So, I think that the crucial process when it comes to thinking about our knowledge and our intelligence is the ability to move information from our working memory, this very small store, into our long-term memory. And the reason that's so important is that it's during that process, which is called memory consolidation, that we create connections and associations between the new piece of information and everything else we know. And it's those associations and connections that give information context, that give knowledge its richness and its rigor, that lead to our ability to to think in creative ways and to make metaphors and kind of leaps of imagination. In that process, the process of memory consolidation requires attention. It's only the things you really focus on for some period of time that make the transfer from your working memory to your long-term memory. And what we've done with the internet and with online life in general is we've essentially created a machine that's very good at short-circuiting memory consolidation. And the reason for that is that we're taking in so much information so quickly that things are going into and out of our working memory, our short-term memory, very, very quickly because as I say, it has a small capacity. So we're not, we're rarely giving ourselves the time and focus to really attend to information. And as a result, we're not consolidating it very well. We're not creating rich associations and connections. And so we get a kind of Googleization of knowledge. Uh, Google gives us, you know, bits of information very, very quickly, but it doesn't give us the rich personal connections 
between all the information. And we even see in the way we talk about memory kind of changes to reflect the changes in the way we're using our memory. So there's this very common thing you read, and I document some instances in the book, uh, that people say, oh, isn't it great that we have Google and the internet? We don't have to remember anything at anything anymore. So we can we can just Google it very, very quickly, search for it. And that frees up our mind to do deep thinking. This is a complete distortion of the way the mind works. Deep thinking actually is all about moving things into memory so we can create connections and associations between them. So, you know, reducing our our capacity for memory doesn't free the mind up for deeper thinking, it it constrains the mind's ability to do deep thinking. So there's a, a, a lot there. And I think that they're the easy examples here, right? You know, people have the experience of being on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And as you're looking at one thing, 80 other things are competing for attention. It's kind of obvious why that is distracting and probably bad for, for deep associations. Or we've all been on a website that has flashing ads and too much going on. But I want to use one of the harder examples you bring up in the book because it's dispiriting for me. Something most of us believe has been a good thing about the internet, and I probably still believe is a good thing about the internet, is links. You can have an article and you can fill it with links that not only cite, but actually give the audience the ability to go deeper on the things you're saying, reading, et cetera. And so there's an enriching of the page, right? This is a way in which online text is richer and a, t a technological advancement upon what came before it. But you cite a study or some studies suggesting that whatever their benefits, links do not actually have the effect of enriching the actual reader's experience in practice but make it harder for them to pay attention to what they're reading. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so there's a in that, there are a lot of of studies about links, hyperlinks and how they influence reading in particular. And at this point I, I think it's pretty safe to say that the predominant message that comes from the research is that hypertext, text with links in it like we get when we're online, leads to more superficial reading, less comprehension and less retention. And that goes against the excitement that everyone felt, including myself, for hypertext in the early days. Uh, this was even before the internet, but you know when people were experimenting with it just on personal computers, which which was exactly what you said. People thought, oh, you know, you'll be able to click on something and suddenly you'll be able to contrast one argument with another, or you'll be able to dig deeper into a particular subject and illuminate it. And there's truth to all of that, by the way. I, I mean. They're very useful in many ways. But what seems to happen when you put links into text is that the link is always a distraction. So you're reading along, and even if you don't click on the link, you see it's highlighted, maybe it's in the color blue, and your mind has to pause uh, or get diverted to say, why is this formatted as a link? What would I find if I click on it? Would it be worthwhile to click on it? Things that we're not even conscious of going on. We're not conscious is happening with our mind, but is very much happening. The result of that is that links are little distractions sprinkled throughout a text. And it makes deep reading much, much harder to do because deep reading requires, you know, really full attention to the text. And this is why I think, and this is this is the theory, and I think it makes sense, that when you look at the studies, uh, why people who uh, read text with links in it 
understand less, comprehend less, and get less enjoyment, actually, out of the material than if you read straight old-fashioned text without links. There are pluses as well, and I don't want to understate that. Um, we've all had you know, moments of revelation that come from clicking on a link. But nevertheless, if we're talking about, you know, encouraging deep reading and deep thinking, it's pretty clear that links are another form of distraction, even though we might not be aware of it. I want to note another study, and then I, I want to go into some of the counter arguments here, because people probably have some of them, and I want to make sure they, they get answered. But a study that really surprised me. So as a journalist, I've always made the argument that, of course, the internet has made us more productive because you used to have to go and microfiche you know, every article from before, and now you can just Google it. And you have a study that seems relevant to me here, which is that as academic journals moved online, and as such, academic citations are more easily at hand, scholars actually cited fewer articles than they had before, despite having so many more at their fingertips to cite. Do, do you want to talk a bit about that and what you think why you think that would be? Yeah. And th this was a study several years ago. I'm not going to remember the guy who did it, but it, it was a professor at uh, the University of Chicago, I think, and was published in, I believe, Science Magazine. So, And he decided, and, and everybody's assumption was that, oh, you put all academic journals online, suddenly everything's available. People's range of, uh, of, of scholarship is going to get much broader. Their citations are going to get much broader because you don't have to go into a library and pull out the journal and flip through the journal and so forth. And so he wanted to test that assumption. So, so he actually kind of did a study of, of what's happened to citations in, in academic literature after journals are digitized. And what he found is, as you said, that actually there are fewer and fewer citations. Um, and the reason that he theorized, and again, I think it, it seems right, is that once you begin, once you bring everything online and, and digitize it, then you begin to apply search engines to it. You find stuff by searching it. And what happens is that search engines are, uh, among other things, kind of popularity engines. Um, and things that are more popular are assumed to be more useful. This is underpins Google from its earliest days, uh, and therefore rise to the top of search results. And so what happens instead of broadening our perspective, everybody's going down the same path to the same articles in this sense. And this, I think, applies to other information as well. And so it, it it revealed that for all the conveniences and, and efficiency of searching text, and I'm not dismissing those, actually sitting down and flipping through physical magazines and going to a, to a library and pulling them off the shelf and actually probably exposed people to a broader set of articles, a broader set of information, because search engines tend to homogenize their results. And it becomes this kind of cycle of as soon as something gets popular and begins to be cited more and more, then it becomes even more popular and becomes begins to be uh, cited even more. So it's this kind of vicious cycle that that happens with with search engines that they that they kind of create a feedback loop that more and more attention of in this case scholars is paid to a narrower narrower set of articles. So I'm obviously sympathetic to your argument, but I want to take the other side of this for a little while because there are good counter arguments here, and I'd like to hear how you answer them. So one implication of this argument is that we were, as a society, a culture, smarter, maybe wiser. We had more connections, better, more going on in our long-term memory in the 80s and the 90s than we do today. Is there actual evidence, given the size of these changes of our medium, 
that we were smarter in the 80s and 90s, that books were better, that ideas were moving forward at a quicker clip? Like, is is there is there anything to substantiate this at the societal level as opposed to the like laboratory experiment level? Yeah, um, there are certain indicators. Um, for instance, standardized tests, tests of general knowledge, um, tests of reading ability, and so forth. They've actually kind of gone down, not dramatically, but but fairly consistently during the internet era, during the last 20, 30 years, which that in and of itself raised questions. If this, if being online all the time was going to was going to make us smarter, you should kind of probably see these kind of test scores going up. And we haven't been seeing that. I think that's, you know, one bit of evidence that it, that certainly our sense that th- we were all going to get smarter because we had more information at our fingertips, that was a naive assumption. Are there other indicators? It's very, very hard to say because I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, Every manifestation of knowledge and intelligence is 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 somehow being impaired. We're we're smart and we're stupid in many many different ways, and I'm sure that some of them benefit from this ability to exchange information very very quickly. I'm sure there are areas in science where even if citations maybe in in academic articles are narrowing, the ability to quickly exchange ideas with other people to see what other people are working on, I'm sure that's very, very beneficial. In many ways, the type of thinking that I am worrying about in the shallows and since then is attentive, contemplative thinking, which I think is not only crucial to the depth of our own personal intelligence, but also in many ways, the kind of satisfaction that we get from our intellectual lives. I'm making an argument that that, that we're, we're losing that or that, that that is eroding. How would we measure that in a scientific way? I have no idea. I'm not sure it's possible. So some of this is subjective judgment that we can, we can debate and in much of it reflects different ideals about the human mind. But now, having said that, over the last 10 years, we've seen many more kind of scientific studies that do show that problem-solving ability, our ability to engage what's called fluid intelligence, which is which is very important to our intelligence. It's the ability to make sense of, of a situation or a problem we've never seen before. That seems to take a hit when our phones are around, our computers are around. There, There's evidence that the richness of our conversations when we're speaking face-to-face is diminished when their phones are around because the phones kind of compete also not only with our intellect, but with our conversation and so forth. And so I, I, I think, you know, if you look across the all of the evidence, you get, it certainly raises concerns. Are there other areas where we've had great benefits? Yes, there are. So, so let me let me give a even more specific example of this. So, one way to take the book is that being in a constant state of overstimulation and distraction is bad, or at least is going to ha- come with this very heavy level of cognitive trade-off. And you can think about that spatially too. You have research in the book showing that after people spend some time in a rural area, they think more sharply, their memory is better and stronger. And yet we know that when people move to cities, they become more economically productive. We know that the agglomeration of people in cities 
is a reason that cities like drive more new ideas, more huge societal advances come out of cities. There's even there there's just even more and more concentration now in cities of patents and so uh, and things like that. It just isn't the case that, as far as we can tell, people living in rural areas have this massive cognitive benefit that you see in some of these studies, which I think at least creates the question of whether or not there are like ecosystem-wide advantages that outweigh some of the individual level disadvantages. It's, a lot of this research is like what happens to a person when you put them in this position, but that possibly like all of us distracted and annoyed, but like swimming in constant information flows together still has some kind of holistic benefit that is akin to why cities are more productive, even though people seem like they think more clearly when they're out of the city. Yeah. So that's a complicated question. And I think there are many parts. I, as people have congregated in cities and in cities have become economic hubs, probably a lot of the most ambitious thinkers, the smartest people have gone there. So you would expect, you would expect there to be a lot of creativity and a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting thinking going on. And in particular, there's, there's just a whole lot <laughs> of people concentrated there. So, so, and that's going to have an effect independent of, of all of this. But you could take my, my argument to the extreme and say that what I'm arguing for is that being in a, in an information rich environment where you're distracted and you're, but you're sharing information that that's somehow bad in that we should all, we should all go out in the woods and sit down in a quiet space and, you know, read Thoreau all day. That's not my argument. My argument is that both of these ways of thinking, thinking and all ways of thinking are valuable. But the danger that we've created with the media environment in particularly digital media environment is that the kind of distracted information overload <laughs> environment has pushed aside contemplative ways of thinking, attentive ways of thinking. And I think that that makes us less capable of doing thinking that may not have huge immediate practical benefits. So it, it may not be the type of thinking that that makes you rich or that makes gives you the ability to rise in in business somehow but is very important to the richness of your own in intellectual life and, and your ability to make sense of difficult things to 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 think in interesting ways and i think it's that that is being lost so in effect we're homogenizing the way we think and making it all about this kind of very fast very seemingly efficient, very convenient way of exchanging informations, information. And I think that that is the loss that is going on. And I'm not sure you can, you can measure that in practical terms. You know, one of the things I criticize is that you can't think about, you can't apply industrial standards to the intellect and to the mind, because then you're going to lose all of the interesting things about our mind that can't be measured and, and can't be optimized for productivity and efficiency. This also strikes me as a way in which the move even from 2007 era internet to 2020 era social media is relevant because there is a lot more social signal on what people are thinking than there was before. 
And so on the one hand, the, the, the previous era, like go before the internet, right? So you, you have like the internet, there's this explosion of, of enthusiasm, which I'm part of for like the fall of the gatekeepers. And now you have bloggers and it's not just op-ed pages and like things aren't just run by an editor and, and that's all great. And, and I continue to think that was actually a very important change because you gave voice to a lot of, of people who didn't have voice before. But now as you move from out of that sort of the internet and into the social internet, it's very clear, as you say in this homogenization process, what somebody like you is supposed to think of things, right? The internet and, and party social media, it's very much like the way people write about things. It's like, I just can't with this person. Or this is amazing. Like, everybody should check this out. And, you know, in contemplative thinking or the, the kinds of things you're, you're talking about, there's a lot less social signal. I don't know what I'm reading a book necessarily, what I am supposed to think of chapter seven. I'm just sitting there in chapter seven. It's me in chapter seven, and we have to come right. to an accord somehow. Whereas now, and I don't mean to get too like old guy, um, you know, concerned about this because I think it has its ups and its downs, but I do think something that's genuinely different about the thinking is that there's a lot more information, but there's also a lot more signal on how you're supposed to receive that information. Whereas before, you know, there was less information, which is a real problem, I think, but there was also less signal on how you were supposed to receive that information, which I think I would assume created a little bit more space for people to come up with interesting ideas on it. Um, whereas now I think there's a lot more pressure on sort of like having the right position on it. Yeah, and in, in a weird way, this brings us back to McLuhan um, in his. Uh, Everything does. he also <laughs> he also um, you know had the idea of of electronic media turning the world into a global village, and again he he meant that in the, you know it's a phrase that's been overused, but he meant it as a contrast with the kind of contemplative literary mind, the individualistic mind that would sit and grapple with a book and and kind of make sense of it as you implied, not based on social signals received or being sent or whatever, but just grapple with it in and of itself. Whereas for most of human history, I, I think social signals were were the dominant way that people quickly made sense of all sorts of events and all sorts of things happening. And I think in a way, with social media in particular, we are coming back to social signaling being you know, very, very important in making meaning and making sense of things. Um, and that does mean a diminishment of the focus on the individual mind as kind of the center of knowledge. And there are good things and bad things <laughs> about both of these, you know, models of, of how we use our mind. I, but there does seem to be this big shift in how we make sense of things. And, it, and to me, this is this is a very kind of profound change. And a lot of it, I think, comes from the fact that because we're, we're receiving and sending messages in public all the time, we always have to have a sense of the social meaning of this stuff and how am I presenting myself? And, you know, if I react this way, am I going to get shamed? Or if I, And I do think that having to kind of make sense and respond to all this information very, very quickly, we sort of default to social signals in in you know, how we determine what's valuable, what it means, what I like, what I hate, and so forth. So it, it does seem like something profound has been happening. And, that, and really, that's, this is kind of since the, <laughs> as you say, since the 2007 in the introduction of the smartphone. Another counter argument to this is that maybe what is happening is more profound to you and me 
and people of our generations who came up in a time that wasn't like this, and it is to the people who this is simply the the water they swim in. And the argument here is that with the introduction of every new technology and every new cultural change, like the olds, the boomers (laughs) of whatever generation we're talking about, I kind of can't believe it. So, I mean, I remember watching music videos as a kid and, you know, the, the, the line from parents was like, how can you even follow what's going on? It's just like all cutting and, you know, and like my parents would see my video games and like not have any idea, like how I was possibly following the action in them and, you know, doing the controller and people were yelling in your ear and whatever, but they all made perfect sense to me because I had come up in that, in that culture and that technological set and could follow it fine. And I now have the same experience with some things like Snapchat or TikTok. Talk or you know I'll I'll jump on a new a new platform and realize I don't feel like I understand this at all. It feels too fast. It feels too chaotic. So maybe some of what we're picking up here is simply a transition cost. But as people are acculturated into it, perhaps their brains are more used to it and are able to filter things out more effectively. Perhaps they just get better at using it and building cultural and and social safeguards around it. I mean, maybe what we're feeling here is the friction of of, of being part of the transition and having a lot of and having a lot of neuroplasticity um, and and then a lot of lock in that was built in a in a previous equilibrium. And so it's a much more jarring transition for us than it will be, say, for for my son. I think that's true to a degree, but last year I taught a seminar, an undergraduate seminar on social media. And so this was 20 young people all around the age of 20. And certainly they're, they're much more immersed in the world of Instagram and Snapchat and, and much more in many ways sophisticated and interpreting than I, than I am or other, other uh, people of my generation. But, but it would be a mistake to think that they don't sense some misgiving and some concerns and some worries about how the technology dominates their thinking moment to moment. Uh, because I do think they they worry about it. In fact, they said they did, and, and they said in very sincere ways. I don't think this is purely kind of a matter of generational perspectives. I, I, I think people of all ages are both excited about the technology and what they can do with it and how in many ways it enriches their lives but also have this sense that it's kind of controlling <laughs> their thoughts. Um, one of the most important things I, th- I think that a person can do is control their own thoughts, determine what they want to attend to, what they want to think about. And more and more, I think now it's what's happening on our phones is determining what we think about. And so I think that's a concern for for everyone, every thoughtful person anyway. But having said that, I do think human beings are very adaptable. And I think we're adapting very, very quickly to this new media environment, which is now a new new environment in which we basically live. So while I, as a critic, as a cultural critic and a technology critic, I want to turn a light on what is lost because too often with our technological enthusiasm, we, j- we just focus on uh, on the gains and, and don't don't stop and say, well, Maybe there's a cost involved here. You know, that's my goal. But but that doesn't mean that I think we're going to go backwards. In many ways, you know, the world of contemplative thought that I um, think I'm talking about and that I I value and still value, I think it I think it is going away and will gain other things, I'm sure. But we're going to lose something as well. And 
one of the criticisms I've heard, I've heard of my own work is that, well, people adapt. Aren't we going to adapt? Yes, we're going to adapt. We've already adapted. I mean, we've adapted, but adaptation is a process of change. And it once you adapt, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're smarter or wiser or more knowledgeable. You may be stupider, um, but you may be more adapted to your environment. So it's a talking about adaptation as, as the goal seems to be, a, to me, to be a mistake. We have to look at, you know, what's gained and what's lost as we go through this process of adaptation. And I think it would be unwise given how how deeply the technology has affected us and affected the way the the way we live in all sorts of ways, particularly over the last five or ten years, it would be the wrong thing to do to simply say, oh, I've adapted so I don't have to worry about anything. I, I think at this moment, we really need to be thoughtful and critical as we look at the technology. This, I mean, as so many things do, brings us in a way back to McLuhan, which he has a, a line in, in, in Understanding Media that we've just seen these protest movements that have been very uh, nurtured online. And it was really striking when I was reading um, his book or, or the parts of it I was able to, to figure out how relevant what he was saying decades ago, and you'll hear it's decades ago when I, uh, I give this quote because some of the language is, is obviously outdated, but decades ago, how much it feels like it's describing some of this moment, he writes, as electrically contracted, the globe is no more than a village. Electric speed and bringing all social and political functions together in a sudden implosion has heightened human awareness of responsibility to an intense degree. It is this implosive factor that alters the position of the Negro, the teenager, and some other groups. They can no longer be contained in the political sense of limited association. They are now involved in our lives as we and theirs, thanks to the electric media. And so the thing that I take him to be saying there is that as we develop this digital like social nervous system, as we move away from the individual thinker as a center of knowledge and more towards this social space, there is at least this one really profound ad advantage or potential benefit of groups we might have walled off, you know, out of the public in a way before now are in, right? You can't you can't pretend that um, your concerns are the only ones that, that are that are there. And there's more capacity to organize and, and force you to confront things outside your own interests and outside your own mind. Um, and I, I'm curious how much you think that has been uh, a, 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 one of the benefits here. If you think that that is that was there um, in in previous equilibriums, and now we're sort of like slingshotting past it. I think it's I think it's very much a benefit, and I, I mean. As with everything else, the pandemic uh, and the, the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, have forced me to, to rethink a lot of my assumptions about social media, or at least question them. And I do think we've seen quite clearly a lot of benefits. And certainly what McClune was getting at with the, the Global Village is that, is that voices that the old media environment used to filter out can't be filtered out anymore. And it seems to me that that's, that's a very good thing. And also there was, there, uh, when people, you know, were getting used to being under lockdown, there was a, uh, I think this, this having this kind of communal nervous system. And I, I really think that that's what's happened with social media. We're kind of, our, our nervous system has been kind of turned inside out. And so it's, it's all, you could say it's all just a bunch of distraction and 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 flows of information, but in kind of way, we used to have a personal stream of consciousness. Now the stream of consciousness is kind of shared throughout society, and I think it actually helped people feel that we were 
kind of all in this together and we're all kind of responsible for one another. And I think it made it considerably easier in, in many cases for people to change their behavior in order to try to slow down the spread of the, the virus. Um, so I think there are these these very important benefits to having this kind of shared stream of consciousness that we're all immersed in all the time. But also, you know, we've seen in very stark fashion a lot of the negative aspects of this with with polarization, with the with the kind of, you know, spread of conspiracy theories and and kind of, you know, plays to emotion rather than reason. Um, so we've really and maybe this is true of of media revolutions all the time is that that we've put ourselves into this in this conundrum where there are really very important benefits and yet there are these these problems that we're struggling with and that I think we're going to keep struggling with in that it's very hard to figure out how we solve them and you know I wish I could say that <laughs> that in the end we'll figure out a way to just get the benefits and not have the problems but I don't think that's going to be the case so I I think we're in for a long period of kind of struggle with this new medium uh, or this new set of media mediums and how it influences the way we think and the way we live and the way we either act together as a as a society or are always at one another's throats and um that's that's the reality and it's going to be the reality for quite a while i think i think it's a good place to to bring it to a close so let me ask you the deep reading question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? The first one is a, is an older book that that I don't think is read very much anymore, but I think is 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 really fascinating, really illuminating. And it's called The Control Revolution. It's by uh, a guy um, named James Benninger, B-E-N-I-G-E-R, a sociologist. There's another book called The Control Revolution that's more recent but this is a different one. This is was published in 1989. And Benninger's argument is that there's always this tension, or at least in modern times, there's this tension between the complexity of life jumping ahead to the point where it goes out of control and there's there's chaos. And, and, and his main example is after the Industrial Revolution, when you had, you know, suddenly you had trains going all over the place and in our ability to coordinate you know, commerce and society, as, as things got more complex, started to break down. So you'd have trains crashing into each other because, you know, uh, time zones weren't invented yet or whatever. And, and his argument is that complexity gets ahead of our ability to control it. We get a lot of chaos. And then you have to figure out how to control it. And that usually means that usually involves imposing information technology. So you can share information much more quickly. So somebody at the end of the line knows exactly where the train is at every moment and stuff. And I think, I think that's very relevant today when what's sped out of, <laughs> out of control, ironically, is information itself. And I think now we're struggling with, you know, how do we impose controls on this that give us the benefits, but somehow enable us to get a grip on and reduce the chaos that has emerged. Um, so that's that's the first book. And then the other two are more recent uh, and very different, but more recent kind of books that are about, I think, the, the human condition <laughs> in our time of kind of media saturation. Uh, and one of them is, is a book by a British author named uh, Lawrence Scott, which is called The Four-Dimensional Human. Uh, it's a nonfiction book. It's 
kind of based on his own experience as a young guy, his own experience in adapting to this strange world that we're now in, where we're always in each other's business and always connected and, and how that kind of changes the texture of our lives. In the other book is a novel that probably a lot of your listeners have already read, but I think is also illuminating in a very different way. And that's uh, Jennifer Egan's novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Nikar, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Nikar for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 